Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession is from Revelation 14. Hear God's word. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Thus far, the reading of God's word. We need to be reformed in God's presence, not removed from his presence. And so it is with our holidays. While the Reformation rightly removed many saints' days, several of our holidays need to be reformed and not removed. This is a call for us to reform Halloween. The church began to celebrate All Saints' Day back in the 300s, celebrating the victorious saints at rest with Christ, the church triumphant. Over time, superstition and error crept in, and All Hallows' Eve turned into Halloween. And like Mardi Gras revelry before Lent's piety, Halloween became the devil's last stand before the celebration of the Holy Ones in glory. So let's get the big picture here on the church Christian calendar year. It begins with Advent and Christmas when we celebrate the coming of the light of the world at our coldest and darkest hour. We then celebrate Christ's death and resurrection in the spring, the new time of life. Uh, We celebrate Pentecost at the beginning of summer when God cultivates our new life in the spirit. Summer is the time of growth. Fall is when the harvest comes in. And we have All Saints Day to remember those who have entered their rest. We have thanksgiving for the harvest. Meanwhile, Satan makes one last grab at the end of history. And this is Halloween. All of history is dramatized in the church year. And it's all pointing to the vindication of Christ's saints as they appear with Christ when he comes again. We need to reform and recover All Saints Day. So let's return thanks to God for our fruitful saints now at rest with Christ. And let's look and hope to our journey through the immediate presence of Christ. Theses to the door. All Saints Day has always been November 1 as well. And so we put these two together and they fit together nicely. Uh, holidays have purposes. Uh, I didn't have this in my notes. I thought of it as we sang For All the Saints, which is a song I can never get through without emotion. Holidays have purposes. God means them to mean something, not just the doctrinal import, but doctrine has purpose for us. And we can think of that regarding Christmas. The the purpose of remembering Christmas is to remember that Jesus became one of us. 
that, that he uh, is a high priest who can sympathize like us. He's fully man. Uh, that's one of the purposes of, of Christmas. One of the purposes of All Saints Day, we sang in uh, verse 5 in, in the hymn, which I'll get emotional about again. But it, it says this, When the strife is fierce, the warfare long, steals on the ear the distant triumph song. And hearts are brave again, and arms are strong. And that's why on All Saints Day we go to Revelation. We go there to hear the distant triumph song again. And what that does is it makes our hearts brave again to go back to the fight. It's one of the purposes of All Saints Day. So I thought I'd just start off with that and tell you what this is all for. Sometimes we ask ourselves, why celebrate Halloween? Why, why celebrate these days? There is one very good reason. Because we need hearts that are brave, and we're not always brave. So, what could we talk about? We could talk about the five solas of the Reformation. We could talk about TULIP. Uh, those are uh, Reformation doctrines. And I'm going to actually mention each of those briefly before I dive into Revelation 14 here. But the main theme, I think, is Revelation 14, where we see God's sovereign over saints and sinners in life and in death. And God's going to see his design for mankind done. The nations blessed and redeemed in Christ. That's what we see in Revelation 14. But first, a brief intro, just some basic teaching on the Reformation doctrine. The five solas, I don't know if you know what they are. If you get these written down, it might come in handy for Reformation Jeopardy later today. Five solas. Sola Scriptura answers the question, what is our ultimate authority? And the answer is scripture alone, not the church, not our own opinions. Sola Scriptura. Number two, sola gratia. The question it answers is, why does God save us? And the answer is, by his grace alone, not by our own efforts. The third, after sola gratia, is solus Christus. The question it answers is, who is our mediator? Who is our mediator? The answer is Christ alone, not the church, not praying to saints and other things. Christ alone is our mediator. Number four is sola fide. The question is, how does God justify us? The answer is by faith alone, not by our works. Sola fide. And the last is soli deo gloria. The question there is, who gets the glory in our lives and in the world? And the answer is God alone. Not ourselves, not the church, not the state, God alone. Those are the five solas. We could talk about TULIP, too, and I'll try to run through this as fast. Total depravity, right? You know the acronym TULIP. Uh, everything that we do is tainted with sin. That's total depravity. The U is unconditional election, which means that we can't think our way into the kingdom of God. We can't behave our way into the kingdom of God. We can't even believe our way into the kingdom of God. God must first choose to give us life for his own reasons, not because he knows we are going to believe or behave. That's unconditional election. The L is for limited atonement. Jesus laid down his life to save his sheep, not to make it possible for all, but to actually atone for the sins of his people. That's limited atonement. The eye of tulip is irresistible grace. 
This means that those God gives life actually come alive. It's not like you can resist that giving of life. They don't, people don't refuse to be born, and they don't refuse to be born again either. And the P is for perseverance or the, or the preservation of the saints. That means that those God makes alive stay alive. Preservation of the saints. So there you have five solas and, and tulip. It's good to remember those and to uh, consider those again. I forgot to bring the book. There's a great book that covers all ten of those doctrines, all in one small book, short articles. I'll try to bring that next week. Uh, I'll, I'll mention it in an email later. But the bigger point is God's sovereignty. In All Saints Day, All Hallows' Eve, is a great time to consider God's sovereignty. So let's move right into Revelation 14, and I'll hopefully show you here that, that, that as the, the outline says, God is sovereign over X, Y, and Z, and, and every verse in this chapter gives us something else that God is sovereign over. The first thing, the first five verses of the chapter, God is sovereign over the saints, over his people. And I read these first five verses as a reference to the whole church. It's a figurative reference. It's not some special class of Christians. It's a reference to the purity of the church triumphant. They are numbered, 144,000, which is a 12 times 12, perfection times perfection kind of message there. They're numbered, they're named, they're identified, they belong, they worship God in his immediate presence, they're holy. That's part of what the 12 by 12 is. Uh, the sexual purity is a symbol for, of their spiritual purity. Uh, so the point here that, uh, that God is sovereign over these saints, the point here is that this is you and this is me. This isn't somebody else. This is where we're all headed as we are in Christ. And that's so good to know. We are all his saints you are known. You are numbered by God. Every in and out of your psyche, all your sinful and godly desires, every hair on your head, God knows it all. And he loves you. In Christ, he loves you. This God is, who is in control is good. He gives us what we need. Security, identity, purity, worship. And the saints are those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, verse 4. I love that phrase. Uh, sometimes Jesus calls us to suffer for him, that we follow him wherever he takes us and wherever he goes. He's sovereign over his saints. I don't know if I'll be able to, to sing today. I, I, can't seem to restrain my emotion but their kids i don't know if you know there's a there's a famous kids song uh famous back when i was a kid at least it's called he's got the whole world in his hands you know that one it fits great into this uh chapter so i'm going to come back to this song every uh <clears throat> so often so the song goes like this and i'll just sing a, a line or two that fits with every point i'm making here throughout revelation 14 he's got the whole world in his hands he's got you and me brother in his hands right the, the brothers and sisters in christ god has in his hands that's the first one the second is in verse seven god is sovereign over his creation fear god give glory to him 
Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. Interesting how it mentions those things specifically, right? This is the God who made all of creation. He made and shaped the heavens, the earth, the sea. He makes the grass and the crops grow. He sends the snow and the rain, the dryness, the fire. He's got, he's got the wind and the rain in his hands, right? We sing that line in that song as well. We drove uh, into town uh, this morning, and I think it was my wife mentioned last week, there's this beautiful tree. It's just gorgeous, the, the brightest yellow color or orange, I forget what it was. And it was, we had to kind of look around the corners, we turned the corner, whoa, it was one of the best trees in town for the autumn colors, right? That was last Sunday. We drove in again this Sunday, this morning. Every leaf was off the tree already within seven days. It's astounding, just an example of God sovereign over his creation. Third is that God is sovereign over the nations. Verse 6 points this out to us. This is the angel who has the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. God has a message for the nations, and he speaks that here in this chapter. The nations, Isaiah says, are a drop in the bucket compared to God's power. And that's something to keep in mind. We are easily impressed with power, with the conglomeration of resources in big nations with big weapons or big corporations with big budgets. God laughs at all these little Babel towers established apart from Christ. It's, it's all going to come down. Verse 8, I think it is. Babylon is fallen. Fallen. But in Christ, God is going to bless all the nations, as he promised Abraham. He's going to save us from our own foolishness and restore all things. So to adapt the kids' song a little bit, he's got America and Russia in his hands. He's got Iran and China in his hands. He's got President Biden in his hands. He's got the coming election in his hands. Right? God is sovereign over the nations. And notice what I'm doing here, just to point out the, po the poetry of, of what I'm doing here, is a, a, a cute little kid's song that is, almost feels trite, right? When we're talking about these great things, Iran, China, President Biden, the election. The whole point is, is to get us out of that frame of mind to remember God is sovereign. So yes, we can sing like this about these things. It's in God's hands. Yes, it's serious, but it's in God's hands. Point four, God is sovereign over our will. Over our will. Uh, here we point out the Reformation doctrine that Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Right? And we see a distinction in this chapter between the saints mentioned at the beginning and then the gospel preached and then those who rebel against it and those who uh, rest in the Lord. Right? There's a, a strong contrast there. And Isaiah reports that, that God declares he will not give his glory to any of his creatures. God uh, is jealous for his glory in a holy way. And that's what the Reformers saw the corrupt church doing in their day, was trying to grab some of that glory, making the people rely cravenly on the church. 
on the bishop speaking certain words to turn the communion elements into Jesus so that you would be saved. That, that kind of error, uh, relying cravenly on the church. The, you pay for an indulgence or say a mass or say an Our Father. Today, we often as Protestants have different problems. We try to rely on other things, methods and techniques to manage our behavior, and we think that's going to save us. Or we rely on our own decision to trust Christ instead of relying on God's grace itself in giving Christ to us. This all robs God of his glory, and the Reformers spoke out. Luther debated with Erasmus in the bondage of the will, that our will is bound, it's enslaved. Our minds and our hearts are not free from sin to please God on our own. We're stuck in Egypt without God's grace. Uh, so, uh, God is sovereign over our will. This is the, one of the most difficult things for evangelicals to grasp and to understand. It's, it's hard simply for the natural mind to accept that these things that are closest and most precious to us, things like our health, our bodies, our children, our mental faculties, they are in God's control. Now, we're responsible to make good choices about these things, of course. But think of Job, and remember, we can do everything right, and God can still bring great tragedy for his own reasons. Or, the other way around, like King Manasseh, look up King Manasseh this afternoon, see if you can find him in the, the Chronicles. He, we can do everything wrong, like he did. He, he committed great wickedness. And God will still grant repentance and restoration. God is sovereign over our will, over the course of our lives. He's got your brain and your body in his hands. He's got your choices and your children in his hands. It's profoundly true. God is sovereign over our will. Number five, he's sovereign over sin. Verse eight we see that. The, if anyone worships the beast in his image, oops, that's verse 9, sorry. Babylon has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So here you see God's sovereign, not only over sin, but over those who lead others into sin. This goes all the way down. God's sovereign over all of it. Babylon, the great harlot, offered many sins to many people. And we here in this place, we raise our children a certain way because of our profound rejection of those things. And we don't want them, our children, to see them or to be tempted by them yet. And that's right. But we also need to realize we're not able, ultimately, to keep the darkness out of our children's lives or out of our own. God has shown the light of Christ on the darkness that creeps into us. And he is dispelling it even now. So we could sing, he's got Hollywood in his hands. He's got your temptations in his hands. God is sovereign over sin. Next, he's sovereign over judgment. We see that in verse 9 through uh, 20. Most of the chapter, actually, 9 through 12, 14 through 20. And this is a gruesome picture at the end, especially that last verse. Uh, it, it's, it, it's quite gruesome. Note the harvest imagery right God's going to reap the earth harvest the whole earth and Jesus uses this very parable right harvest the whole field throw the wheat into the barns burn up the chaff it's the same kind of picture 
and it shows that the unbeliever is, is really foolish. He's been growing up as a weed in God's field, all along thinking he's the Lord of the field. That that's, tends to be how they think. They're going to get a rude awakening when the combine mows him down and throws him into the place of darkness, smoke, fire, and brimstone. God's judgment is real. We could talk about the sim- symbolism of the, the picture, you know, that the fundamentalist church has uh, for a long time held tightly to the, a literal reading of this. I like what the way uh, R.C. Sproul uh, interprets that he says well if it's a symbol then the reality is going to be worse so sometimes you use the symbol to to diminish it and kind of say we don't have to deal with this well it may be symbolic like much else in revelation is symbolic but if it is it's symbolizing something real that's even worse than we can imagine so uh, there's a reality to this uh, judgment divine judgment and god is sovereign over that God's judgment is real. Now, the corrupt medieval church would use this truth to scare people into giving money to the church, right? This is another reason we celebrate Reformation Day. You could buy Uncle Joe out of this horror. Now, the reformers didn't back away from the truth of hell. They warned people, and we ought to continue doing so, but they called for faith in Christ, which is free. They rejected a craven dependence on the church to work some magic for the right price to get you out of hell. God is sovereign over hell. Can't sing this, but God has fair and just punishment in his hands. He has eternal hell in his hands. Verse 12, too, we see there the wicked prospering and advancing their agenda on earth. We hear all kinds of things in the news about this these days. Persecution of Christians, sometimes you see it uh, at work or in the media. But we can be patient and we can persevere. I love that verse, 12. This is the patience of the saints. And John's writing to a people, a, a Christian group of Christians who are being persecuted. When he writes, um, don't put the mark of the beast on your hand and your forehead. We don't know exactly what that was. But that was real pressure and intimidation to worship the beast, to renounce Christ, to go along with the crowd in doing wickedness. And so John says, here's the patience of the saints. Be patient, be faithful. And if that takes you to death, God is sovereign over death. Verse 13, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, that they may rest from their labors. We pull that verse out of context all the time. I do it myself. It, it, it is a wonderful um, comfort all in itself. But notice the context. The context here is, is persecution, God bringing the gospel to all the nations, calling the nations to repent. They don't. They rebel against God instead and so persecute his people. And and you read Revelation, you see it throughout, and, and sometimes that results in some of God's people being put to death. And the point is, verse 13, let's think about the church triumphant then. Let's celebrate All Saints Day then. Because being put to death for the faith is not the end of the story. It's only an entrance into greater glory. So, these who die in the Lord, they go to glory, light, pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16 says. What a blessed picture of rest and reward. 
on our end, it's hard to let go. Whether it's a baby in miscarriage or a parent, a piece of our heart goes with the ones we love. And it hurts. I've used this analogy before. It's, it's, it's a good one, I think. Imagine, kids, that it's Thanksgiving Day. That's coming up, right? And you're walking through the house. It's, it's noon, and you, you, you walk into the living room, and you find a piece of candy on the coffee table in the living room. Like, ah! And you pick it up to eat it. It's candy time. But then mom calls you in to dinner, to the next room. It's time for the Thanksgiving meal. Put that down and come here. Mom says, oh, that's hard to do. You've got the candy right in your hand. But you haven't. (laughs) But you have no idea the feast that's prepared for you in the next room. It's kind of a trivial metaphor for a reality of such consequence. Letting that loved one go is so hard to do. But God is sovereign over death. And with that control, he gives us an eternal feast of rest and reward. He's got the tiny little baby in his hands. He's got your mother and your father in his hands. He's got all the saints in his hands. God is sovereign over death, over life, over the nations, over judgment. He covers it all right in one chapter of Revelation. It's it's astounding. Your works follow you. I'm going to focus on that a bit here for a moment. This, This takes us to the cultural mandate part of the Reformation. It isn't all going to burn. Your labor is not in vain. Your reward for faithfulness that God granted you will go with you. So connect God's sovereignty to his first command to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, be multi- uh, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. God's first act of sovereignty after creation itself was to make us rulers under him and for him, taking, uh, taking dominion of the creation he made. That doesn't mean doing whatever you want with it. That that word dominion is a little loaded in that direction. But it just means harness the resources that God has given you and use them to produce fruit pleasing to him. Your works will follow you. The reformers served on city councils. They set up schools. They wrote books. They cared for the poor. You can't do these things if you think it's all hopeless. James Boyce wrote in the back of the Reformation Study Bible a long time ago. He said, Reformed people have had various views in this area depending on the extent to which they believe such a transformation possible. That's a pretty good summary that encapsulates all the different eschatological views of the Reformation. But he goes on to say that all the Reformed believe we are to be in the world, not withdrawn from it like monks. Jesus does not pray for us to be taken out of the world, but for us to be faithful in it. God promises to bless all the nations through Abraham's seed, and he has kept that promise. Uh, I don't know if you realize, this is important with all the political rhetoric that goes on, to the extent that America is great, 
It is not because she is free. It is not because her people are enterprising and hardworking. America is not great even because of our Christian heritage. All those things may be true, that those things are happening, but America is great because God has kept his promise to Abraham to bless every nation in Christ. That kind of rubs us the wrong way in our right-leaning political rhetoric sometimes. We are citizens of this great nation. We are in the world, and in the world, we're doing three main things. We're evangelizing, we're meeting basic needs for the poor or those in crisis, and we're working for godly practices and laws as neighborhoods and as nations. Reformers are transformers of culture. And it's true that there's a Babylon that burns in the end, the corrupt city of man. But that doesn't keep us from working and building and looking in faith for a better city coming down from heaven in the end. That part's a little bit frustrating because I see it like this. God keeps, you know how Peter says that we're all stones that are being set in place into the temple, right? Well, that city is up in heaven. God's building the city in heaven and then it's going to come down to earth on the last day. So it's a little frustrating because God keeps taking the stones that he chisels down here and then he places them in the building up there in the church triumphant where we can't see them. It's a little frustrating. But God's doing that uh, to grow our faith, I believe. Our fathers and our mothers' works followed them. Yours will follow you. Your children will do more and different things than you. And it's all by God's sovereign grace that he builds the city. So God's sovereignty, it means we work hard. He uses us to do his will in part. Uh, part of what the reformers reformed was the dignity of normal work. The, the housewife in her kitchen, the, the cobbler, People tend to think that becoming a, a pastor or a missionary is more spiritual than being a shoemaker or a blacksmith or an engineer or an accountant. And the church back then exploited that. Let the people think that. And that increases the church's earthly influence self-servingly. No, no, no. You are building God's kingdom as you manage the project, as you balance the books, as you teach your children, as you study for a test, as you build a deck, as you fix a washing machine, mend clothing, grind away at the shop, call home over lunch, make doctor's appointments. It often doesn't feel like you're building the kingdom of God in these things, and that's because the fall has distorted and frustrated the goal for much of our employment. But we can believe that God will carry it to completion, transform it, instead of throw it all in the trash. And that's what he's doing with you. Not throwing you in the trash, I mean. He's transforming us. All creation groans in the travail of labor, but the result will not be a stillbirth. It will be a huge nation, born in a day, as Isaiah says. God's sovereignty means we work hard, knowing we are instruments of his sovereignty, not just puppets that aren't really doing anything. And I'll close with this. God's sovereignty means we're never desperate in that. Uh, when we're frustrated in our efforts, we don't need to get desperate. When the poll numbers don't look good, don't get desperate. Right? God is in control. We are only watering. If someone walks away when we mention Jesus, 
God's got it covered. If someone abuses charity offered, God's got it covered. If the government gets overbearing and tyrannical, well, more so, anyway, God's got that covered too. When finances get tight and, un- and your employment isn't certain, God's got it covered. It doesn't mean we shrug and give up, but it means we don't lose faith and fall into fear. We don't go into fight mode where the lost or the poor or the liberals are now the enemy whom we need to deride and destroy. We don't get desperate. That's, that's God's business to take care of them. And he does it as we see at the end of Revelation 14. But he means for us now to be tools to redeem a messed up people, starting with ourselves. God is going to see his design for mankind done. The nations blessed and redeemed in Christ. People of God, he is sovereign over saints like us and sinners like us in all of our life and in death. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you, the God of glory. Your word calls us to give glory to you, but we are so quick to grab it for ourselves. Even your church has done this in the past and needed reformation. And so we uh, list before you reformations past now. We thank you, Lord, for the saints. We thank you for Adam's work of regathering his family after Abel's murder. We praise you for Abram, reckoning God's promises true by faith. We thank you for Rebekah, being willing to leave her home and marry Isaac. We praise you for the midwives in Egypt who disobeyed Pharaoh and preserved life. We thank you for the faith of Rahab. That faith led her to send the police the wrong way, justifying her before God. We thank you for Gideon who tore down his father's idol. For Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Jonah, Malachi, prophets who spoke truth in powerful places regardless of the consequences. We thank you for gospel writers and nameless early believers who spread the message of Jesus to their neighbors. We praise you for the ministry of Paul and Timothy and Titus. We thank you for Stephen, who did not flinch, but preached Jesus to a hostile audience and prayed to Jesus while the stones hit him. We praise you for the saints, Lord, for Athanasius, who stood for Trinitarian truth against the majority of churchmen, for Chrysostom, the golden-tongued preacher of Constantinople, for Augustine, the African bishop, who taught the church her confidence as Rome fell around her, for Patrick, who converted most of Ireland without any violence, for Columba, who took the gospel to the Scots and the rest of barbarian Europe, for Boniface, who courageously, courageously cut down their idols, for Charlemagne, who provided for much Christian learning, for Anselm, who considered the infinite atonement needed for the infinite dishonor of our sin, for faithful soldiers serving the Lord as they knew best against militant Islam in Spain and in Israel, for Knights Templar and Knights Hospitaller, for the learning of Abelard and Aquinas, the piety of Francis of Assisi, the reforms of Wycliffe and Huss, Tyndale and Bootser, Luther and Zwingli, Calvin and Knox, 
We thank you for the enterprise and the ambition to take the faith to a new world that Columbus had, John Smith, William Bradford, for the faithful walking into a modern world, for Westminster assemblymen like Jeremiah Burroughs and Samuel Rutherford. We thank you for John Bunyan scribbling, scribbling a story in prison while separated from his family for years for John Knox, who confronted the queen, who prayed, give me Scotland or I die. We thank you for William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, David Brainerd, Dr. Livingston, and other pioneering missionaries who sought to bring the light of Christ to those in ignorance. For Whitfield and Wesley, who burned with a zeal to evangelize all men and preach Christ crucified. We thank you for saints like Blaise Pascal, Jonathan Edwards, Patrick Henry, George Washington, Soren Kierkegaard, Charles Spurgeon, J. Gresham Machen, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Francis Schaeffer, R.C. Sproul. And Lord, we close by thanking you also for lesser known saints, but those saints who are dear in heart to us, who have gone before us in glory. Many little ones that we have not met, those that you called to yourself straight from the womb, some from those sitting among us. In Christ, you have given all these saints, our fathers and mothers, our family and our friends. You have given them all rest from the wars which never cease in this earth. And we consider them now before you, gratefully remembering how you have glorified yourself through them, how they enriched our lives as mentors, parents, grandparents, siblings, children, and friends. We praise you, Lord, for you have glorified yourself for all the saints. We pray all this, Lord, in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, and we sing as he has taught us to pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.